Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. Before I start, I have a very quick question for all my supporters. How would you feel about me doing a review or two of something that wasn't retro gaming related? I'm in the house now, you know, I'm in the middle of the burbs, and I've gotten a bunch of equipment over the past six months plus that, I don't know, I feel like I, I haven't found a review out there that really shows exactly what it's like to use these devices and which one's better. So I just wanted to ask all of you because it is you who keeps this going. So if you'd look at it from the perspective of, oh yeah, whatever, I might not be into the stupid thing you're reviewing, but do whatever you want, then cool, I'll do it. But if you're like, no fatty, we pay you for retro gaming stuff, so stay in your lane and you know leave your lawn equipment in the lawn, that's cool too. Actually be kind of funny if you said it that way, but a little nicer if you said it a different way, but whatever, hopefully you all get my point. Um, is this something that if I did now and then would just be annoying and out of place? The one thing that does really bug me about all of these social media services is how it's so easy to get pigeonholed into the the lag guy or the, you know, the lawnmower chick or whatever. Uh, and I just, that's not me. Anybody that hangs out with me in real life knows I'm into a whole bunch of crazy shit. So just wanted your opinion. Uh, if you don't have time to respond, it's totally cool. If you do, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. But enough rambling about this stuff. Let's jump in and see the, the questions we have this week. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer found an old Mr. Kit with everything except the DE10 that they don't need anymore. So they have all of the newer stuff and a bigger RAM module, but all of the older stuff still works totally fine, and the 32 megabyte RAM module works with a whole bunch of different cores. So they were looking to use it as a giveaway and donate it to RetroRGB to give away to one of the followers, which is an amazing thing to offer, and it's very much appreciated. And now that I'm on Whatnot, I think that's the perfect place to do that. There's some very weird stuff when you do giveaways that happens, or anybody that's been following me for a while probably remembers that stupid drama. But going through Whatnot removes all of that. If for whatever reason where I'm living now, I'm not supposed to be doing a giveaway, it's Whatnot's problem, not mine. I could just do it and be able to take this nice gesture and get it in the hands of somebody who maybe followed the video that I recently put up and just picked up a DE10 and went, oh, this is great. I love it, but I'm stuck not being able to use a bunch more cores and I need a bigger USB hub and I don't have the cash right now. I would love to get that in those person's hands. So uh, the importer, if you are... If you're okay with this, you know, contact me directly, message me, or uh, we'll figure something out. I don't know if Floatplane does direct messaging, so I'll respond to you there. But basically, get in touch, and we'll figure this out. If you're all right with whatnot, I can either do it on one of my streams, or I have friends that have been joining the platform now. Justin from Console Kits is on there. Uh, Retro Ralph's on there. I've trolled him on a bunch of his streams. Funny, happy, positive trolling, not douchey trolling. But yeah, I'm totally trolling Ralph on his streams every now and then. So if I am not having a stream in the next couple of weeks and you want to do this, I guarantee they would. one of these people would love to do it for you um, and just kind of spread the love, the retro gaming nerdy love around. So if you or anybody else wants to do anything like that, let me know and I'll try to put you in touch with the right people and we'll figure it out. Maybe I do the giveaway with a picture of everything and then send you the label and then you just ship it out. Uh, if you're more comfortable, maybe you send it to one of our PO boxes and we could just deal with all of that, whatever it might be. Um, I just, uh, I think that's the perfect place to do it. And I think, it, you know, since it's not only free to sign up, but if you use that link that I always put out there, you get 10 bucks off your first actual purchase. So yes, you're telling people that they have to sign up for a new purchase, but they're all our new service, but they also get 10 bucks towards it and the chance to win whatever you're selling. So I think that's a fair ask for people, but as always, let me know all of your thoughts. Um, if anybody else has anything like this, I could put you in touch with the right people. The only thing I might suggest is if somebody has a whatnot stream coming up where they're selling Mr. Accessories, that would be the perfect place to do the giveaway because it's a better fit. Um, or not. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's ever going to complain about free stuff, right? So thank you very much for the suggestion. Um, you know, let me know about it and we'll, we'll kind of figure something out from there. 
Now over on Patreon, Oliver Clare is considering putting together a page on the wiki called something like High Priority Repairs that would have a list of consoles in a table format and a corresponding list of repairs that you should consider very soon after purchasing your retro console to prevent irreparable damage down the line. Irreparable? Irreparable? I only speak one language and I'm not even that freaking good at it. Anyway, um, I love this idea. I just have one suggestion that I think that's what you mean anyway, but you know, it's me. So I got to say it. Um, I love having a list like this, but just make sure that you link back to the corresponding pages and not double the info. So for example, having something like, you know, the number one Xbox uh, clock capacitor snip or replace Great, list that, but then don't put the guide how to do it on that page. Link back to the guide that's already in the Xbox section. And what you could easily double up, that I am all for, you know, Durf's going to give it the thumbs up too, but doubling the links. So if you go to the Xbox page, having a section that says must repair immediately, and then you click on it and, you know, it's the you know, the clock capacitor or, you know, or maybe it's not even a section, but maybe just on the main Xbox page, it's just a, a sublink right there. So it's not even its own page. It just, you know, having two links on the same page is fine, but having two of the exact same guides would require maintaining two guides. So having, you know, having technically that would be three places. You have your high priority repairs page that lists all of this stuff. Then on the main Xbox page, you know, you might have, you know, in red letters, like high priority repairs or must repair or look at immediately, whatever you want to call it. And then the link's right there. And then also under like suggested repairs, you could see like clock, you know, capacitor replacement, that's fine because maintaining links like that, the point to the same thing is, you know, not really much effort. Don't go crazy. You don't want 20 links on the same page, but I guess that's just the only really long drawn out point I wanted to make was that I love the idea and it's totally okay to replicate links. I just would make sure to keep all of the guides in one place. And I even want to see, would love to see things like you know, each guide doesn't have steps on disassembling your Xbox. At the beginning of the guide, it would say, disassemble your Xbox. If you're unfamiliar, click on this, Xbox disassembly or something like that. So basically, the more we could streamline this, the easier it's going to be to maintain, which means all the dominoes are going to fall in the right direction after that. So hopefully I explained that right. I think it's a great idea and I love it. And, and thank you for thinking about this stuff. Noah said they finally set up their G-SCART switch that they received a while back and used a Cable Direct SCART cable after a recommendation for a friend. Unfortunately, it adds noticeable audio noise on a white screen compared to plugging in their console SCART cables directly into their PVM SCART adapter. The level of additional buzz on white screen is comparable to the Belkin I tested when comparing to the flat SCART cable from Retro Gaming Cables. Unfortunately, that flat cable appears to be gone now, at least from RGC. Do I know of an available SCART SCART cable of comparable quality to the flat one, if not the same one? The Cable Direct one isn't bad, but they're pretty peculiar about audio, and they're striving for the least audible interference. Yes, so you nailed everything. The Cable Directs are not shielded, which is weird because they're big, thick, heavy cables, and they have dedicated grounds for each signal that needs them, but it's just a ground wire run alongside the signal. It's not wrapped in the ground shielding. So technically it's unshielded or at least for our purposes, probably the big outer thing is shielded from outside interference, but your audio buzz is still getting interference from the video lines. And I bet you, if you use composite video as sync, you're going to get that, that crazy checkerboard pattern type of thing going on. So the reason your friend might have recommended them, the reason that I recommend them is because they're cheap. And last I checked, they were still available on Amazon. And I am always a huge believer, sorry to sound like a broken record, but I am a huge believer in tools in your toolbox. So I don't think you wasted money on that cable because I think you're going to be able to use it for a million things going forward. Like, oh, I need to test this out. Let me grab that other cheap cable I have or whatever else. Or So I, I just don't think that they're the, the solution for permanently wiring up your setup. Great for temporary, great as a spare if you just need to plug something in real quick. Um, so what I would suggest is check any of the main cable manufacturers for 
fully shielded designs. Retro Access has them. I don't, you know, I have them here. I'm pretty sure Retro Gaming Cable still has those in stock. Rob sent me one a while back when I ordered a bunch of stuff and I was like, hey, I think you sent me one of these by accident. He's like, no, why don't you have it? I'm making new shielded stuff now. So that was like a year and a half ago and it tested fine. I probably forgot to put a review of it up. Sorry, Rob. But, um, but yeah, I mean, any of the reputable cable manufacturers are either going to say, if this is a unshielded cheap cable that we we just offer for people that want something inexpensive, or it's going to be fully shielded. It's basically the opposite of what you would see everywhere else. All the reputable manufacturers, if they don't list it as anything specific, it's going to be shielded, uh, and you know they'll warn you if it's not. So that's where I would go. If that doesn't work, you could try to do something like uh, you know HD fifteen discard and a shielded VGA cable. Now that I'm remembering, I don't think the opposite is out yet. I think because of the part shortage and we had trouble getting VGA connectors, honestly, as weird as that sounds, uh, the one that goes in the opposite direction. So you plug one into your G-SCART, then you plug your VGA cable and your separate shielded audio cable into that, and then you plug that into the HD15 Discart. That's a pretty good idea too. And depending on the length, it could be more expensive or cheaper than just getting a fully shielded SCART cable. So I think if you're going for like a, you know, a three foot cable, just buy from one of the manufacturers. Uh, but, you know, if you needed like a 15 foot run or a 20 foot run, you might be able to get a shielded cheap VGA cable, a shielded cheap 3.5 millimeter audio cable and these two adapters. So choices. Um, but once again, I don't think the second adapter is released yet. So uh, I'm basically rambling on about the Dreamcast HD Retrovision cables. So, so uh, sorry about that. I just wanted to paint the picture for when these things are released um, or if you could find similar similar solutions in the short term. But based on your setup, what I think you should probably do is just go to Retro Access or Retro Gaming Cables, uh, check Insurrection Industries too, just in case they have something and see if they have anything in stock that you could buy for now. And I'll go back and take a look at what happened with the uh, the other G-SCART to D-sub adapter that uh, that we were working on. The Remora has been on the fence about picking up a TurboGrafx-16 or a PC Engine. A local shop has a core graphics and CD drive, but because they have the boxes, they want a ton of money for them. Even if they imported one, there's still the issue of an expensive ODE being the only one on the market available currently. So do I think it's worth it to pick up all that hardware when the Mister is out there? Their use case for the Mister is really just PC Engine and arcade stuff, and they have all the other consoles they want, and they already have ROM carts and ODEs for them. So basically, Mister versus original and expensive PC Engine hardware, which would I pick? My answer is easy, which requires some explanation. Pick whichever is the experience you're looking to go for, which sounds like a bullshit answer, but give me a moment and hopefully it'll all make sense. So if you grew up with a PC Engine or you were fascinated by it as a kid and you wanted to have the full experience and you have a wall full of games already and you have a wall full of boxes, that's a really important experience to have. Um, depending on your setup, maybe you're the person that carefully unboxes and reboxes them every time you use the console. Maybe you're the person that leaves the box on the top of your shelf, but when you go to play your games, you go on your shelf and you select the game and you take out the hue card or the disc and you grab your controller and, you know, you, you love plugging the hue card in or you love putting the CD in hearing it spin up. And, you know, if that's important to you, then it's worth whatever it's worth to you to spend on that. And for me personally, there's a lot of, like, I want to see a Super Nintendo and a Genesis on my gaming setup. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe something's going to happen where the uh, Mr. 8K Editions released in a couple years, and it's the only thing I'll ever use again, but I still want to see my Super Nintendo and my Genesis sitting in front of me. And if I had a little more space and the room was set up differently, I would love to see a Super Nintendo and a Genesis box. I might even like to see an original NES box up on the wall, just displayed and nice and that's something that I, that is important to me. But if your goal is to just play the game in the best way possible, and that's not important to you at all, and you're not a collector, and you don't have room for that stuff, starting with the Mister is definitely a good choice. And there's a lot of advantages. I mean, especially the PC Engine Core is very solid, and it offers things that you can't always get on the original. So not only are you getting access to all the discs and the Hue cards, but you could have it set to output the correct 
color palette in RGB or HDMI modes, which is something that you can't do on original hardware. You can do it with the, the new SSD S3 minus 12 HD, whatever the name is of that thing. I never remember because there's so many letters in it. Um, you could do it there, but you know, that's not, that might not be your total solution. Or you could do a hybrid of both. Maybe you just love the look of the PC engine. So you want to just get a PC engine and a controller, have that imported, use a uh, triad power supply, and you could play your Hue cards and your original games off of there. You can get a spark plug so you can get a fairly inexpensive RGB or composite video out from Turbo Graphics and PC engines. And then, you know, when you just want to hit up different types of games, super graphics, whatever else, you grab the mister. It really has to come down to what's important to you. The only thing that I would suggest is that pick up, e even if you're not 100% into it, pick up a cheap Hyperkin TurboGrafx controller and a controller adapter. Or if they make a USB version, that will should work with the mister as well. Just so you could kind of feel what it's like to have the original. Because especially back in the day, each controller was part of the experience of these consoles. And I remember a neighbor just, I mean, he maybe was 10 years old, losing his mind about the Genesis controller, about how it's curved and it fits your hands so much better than the Master System and the NES controller. And some people hate that three-button controller. I love it. It's one of my favorites. But I'll never really forget that because it was such a big deal to him to have a more comfortable controller. So, you know, you got to decide for yourself what's important. And... I'm always going to love a combination of original hardware and whatever is the easiest way to play it, but that's going to be something you decide yourself. So if you're on the fence, I would say grab a mister because I think a lot of people at first think, oh, well, I could just sell all my games if I have a mister and I don't need anything like that. And that does happen, but I think what happens much more often is people get really into all of the, the stuff and the culture around it. So they get the mister and they're like, oh, why would I ever buy original hardware? This whole thing was just, you know, 300 bucks total. And they start playing and they're like, this is really neat, but let me get some original controllers. Oh, I'd love to get an original turbo tap. Oh, you know, I love the artwork of that game. And before they know it, they have a mister and the original hardware that's important to them. So that was a long way of, of saying what I just opened up with. And I just, I, I wanted to take the time to, to paint that picture for everybody listening, because it's just so easy to take either extreme side and not really think it through. It's so easy to be like, it's dumb to spend money on stuff when you could buy a mister. Or it's just as easy to be like, I don't ever use any emulation. That's stupid. I want original. Neither of those are true. It's somewhere in the middle for everybody, and it's really all up to you. So hopefully that was more of a good direction and less rambling, but I'll leave that decision up to you as well. <laughs> a couple of questions from Nertac. They want to hook their GameCube up to their HDTV using component video through their G-Comp switch into the RetroTINK 5X. Previously, they were using an Eon GCHD Mark II that used to work fine, but now they're only getting audio. They've tried it on multiple TVs with multiple component cords on all of them, and they only get audio from component, but the HDMI output works fine. They assume it's just broken, but want to know if I was aware of that issue and knew of a fix. So I don't know of this being an issue, but this specific thing being an issue, but what I do know is that Dan designed the inside of those, which were great. And Eon took his really nice design and slapped it together in an embarrassing fashion. Uh, and they did the same thing with the Super 64 too. There's pictures everywhere showing how bad the connections are. It's really a shame that they did that. But what I would suggest is if it's already not working and it's something that you need to use, grab a Dremel or a hand, like a small handsaw, like the ones that used to come with Swiss Army knives, whatever, and carefully cut open that overmolding. Be careful because anytime you have an overmolded thing like that, it's easy to slip and cut yourself. But I would open it up that way and I would visually check and you should know exactly what I'm talking about, about how badly they connected the ports together on that stuff. You should see, you know, if you see pins hanging off or anything like that, you could probably repair them. Um, bro um, and I'm not talking about like broken traces on a PCB. I'm talking about large pieces of wire and solder that are just kind of hanging off. You'll see, you can't miss it. So you could try that to fix it. If you don't want to deal with that, 
I, I might just give it away or sell it or whatever and just save for HDMI use only. Now you could try to convert that from HDMI to component, which looks like it's the next part of your question. You bought one of those cheap DACs that I always talk about, and it gets just a blue screen with no picture or sound at all. And it also has it's feeding power back into the GameCube even when the GameCube is off. So both of those are an issue. I, I have seen very expensive, very high quality adapters send voltage down the HDMI port and it's not high amperage. I think it's there. I don't think the voltage is there to, to be meant to power something. I think it's really just meant to try to say, you know, for all of the HDMI compliant reasons that it's there. And I think it's the reason you run into it with devices like this is because it's always powered on, whereas your device isn't. But the blue screen thing is the issue. So what I would just do is return that to Amazon and um, either get a different brand if whatever is linked there is in stock or just ask for a replacement. And what you're running into is what I always warn when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. People about with this stuff. Yes, I could recommend $100 DACs instead, or more expensive than that, that will probably work fine every time you buy one. But it's my opinion, and it's okay if you fully disagree with this, but I would rather tell people, hey, here's a $20 thing, and it might not work. Nine out of 10 will work fine, and one will do what you're talking about, but it won't hurt anything, and just return it, ask for an exchange, and you lose time. You don't lose any money. And a lot of people out there might look at that as, I'd rather just spend the 100 bucks and not waste any of my time troubleshooting this crap, which is fair. But I think the majority of people would rather say, yeah, I'll waste five minutes here and there trying two adapters and save 80 bucks and not have to worry about returning it. So that's why I recommend these. Because when they perform right, they're awesome. And when they don't perform right, I send it back and get another one. So that's my opinion on that. Um, Definitely try the ones that I linked to first, just because people are consistently buying from them and people are consistently getting mixed results. Nine out of 10 are perfect, and one will always end up like this. And you occasionally have the rare moment where you return one, get a replacement, and it is also bad. Somebody on Twitter was very politely having this conversation. They weren't, you know, they weren't complaining about that or anything, but it does happen. But I really just think it's something that in the long run is worth a few minutes of your time to save a lot of money. Lastly, other than using the original GameCube component cables, what's currently the best way to connect a GameCube into a G-Comp switch for use with the RetroTINK 5X? I've heard mixed opinions about the RetroBit one. Uh, they never sent one to Extrems, which is like pretty insulting, to be honest with you. I'm not sure what the hell Ron's thinking with that, but um, I hopefully Extrems will get one and do a full review of it at some point. I'd love to repost that or post that on RetroRGB for everybody to know. But the non-technical reviews that I've been saying, the people that, with respect, didn't really understand how to do a deep dive into analyzing this stuff, came back that should be fine. Some people were getting audio issues on it, but it wasn't bad. It certainly wasn't anything that could hurt your equipment, and there weren't any massive major complaints. So when Extrems finishes the review, there might be a completely different opinion on this, but I think that... Uh, you know, it's a safe bet that if you're looking for something that's not super expensive that you could just plug in and use, try to pick up the retro bit ones. Um, and, you know, same caveat applies. You plug it in and nothing works, then, you know, contact where you got it from and get a replacement. But I think it's a pretty safe bet. And I certainly don't think that reviews are going to come out where you find out it's terrible. I think as with everything, there might be some nitpicking, but I don't think they're overall horrible solutions. I think it's 
a fairly priced alternative to the original that should probably give you a very good experience on the RetroTank 5X. All guesses, though, not facts. I always want to be clear about that. So hopefully I was able to point in the right direction. Brady is having issues with their 32X and went into detail about what all of the problems were. I read every word, but just in respect of everybody's time, I'm going to skip to the end and say that first, 32Xs are nuts. They're terribly built. They're terribly designed. Anybody who's ever opened one up knows that they're poorly made with a bunch of bodge wires. I'm shocked they worked at all, to be honest with you. Sometimes you'll get lucky and you have one that you could plug into your Genesis and it works. And whenever I find that combination, I'm tempted to never remove it again, just in case. Um, But the specific issues Brady had were things that could apply to other scenarios, which is why I definitely want to talk about it. First, they recapped it. They tried cleaning it up a bit. And when they put it back together, uh, there was a tiny little bit of smoke and they powered everything off and realized that power was shorting to the metal shielding around it. So there's a few things you could do in scenarios like this. First and foremost, don't worry about this in most scenarios. As you're listening to this, don't go thinking that you need to take apart your Sega Genesis and and isolate the metal shield. In most cases, it's never going to be an issue. But with 32X, you could do something like remove all the metal shielding and just have it with the plastic around it, but there's a lot of components going on there. So a lot of times shielding is to prevent it from interfering with other things around it or to prevent other things from interfering with it which is why you'll see things like Japanese Genesis and Master System consoles don't have the shielding because they just didn't really need it for the protocols for all the electronic equipment that were used at that time, whereas you did need them in the U.S. However, in a case like the 32X, I would leave these on because of all the issues that might come about with having all of these different PCBs right next to each other. It might really be necessary to have it perform without a ton of interference. So what I would always suggest doing if you're in a scenario like this, you have a weird console that definitely had a short uh, and you need to put it together with the shielding is add isolating tape to the shield, not to the PCB. And here's why you isolate the shield. You could, you know, I wouldn't recommend doing this on purpose, but you could have voltage lightly bouncing into it now and then, and you're not going to have any shorts. Now, if you push down a, you know, a pin that's sticking through the bottom, it's going to go right through whatever tape that you use. I just mean in the situation, like, you know, it's hovering over the metal. And if it's just close enough to arc, then this would stop it. I would not shield the PCB because then you're going to insulate and heat up the bottom of that PCB, which I mean, one might argue you're still doing that taping the other thing, but I think it's the lesser of two evils. So what you did with snipping anything that's sticking out too far from the bottom, stuff that's obvious, things that are definitely pins from resistors or capacitors. If you don't know what it is, don't snip it. And then isolating the metal with tape or something, that should be the easiest way around that. Also, you mentioned that one of the replacement caps that you use seems to be a little bit bigger and it might barely touch the top of the top shield. You have two choices at that point. Leave off, three choices. Leave off the top shield. Try putting some tape, some, you know, they call it electrical tape, which is annoying because there's nothing electrical about it, but just some black insulating tape, some capped on tape, whatever you prefer. You could try putting that on the metal shield and see if that's fine. Or you could drill a hole, you could just use like the whole bit for your uh, your drill, that's the size of the cap, so the capacitor sticks through the metal, but doesn't quite touch the top plastic. Um, I've tried all three of those, and while I didn't immediately notice any interference, just taking the metal shield off, it made me nervous. So if it's something that you were selling to somebody else, I would try to find the most robust solution. If it's your own... Leave the metal top, top metal shielding off and see what happens. Maybe everything's fine and there's no interference in your house and leave the shield in a box, you know, your old box of crap that you don't want to throw out, but you'll probably never use. And if for whatever reason you go to sell it, you know, you could include it with it. Um, Other than that, uh, you talked about stacking a different capacitor. uh, And if you don't want to replace the original, if If Console 5 lists that as an option, it's totally safe to do. It's one of these things where 
in order to properly answer why it's sometimes okay to stack capacitors and sometimes it's not, I'd have to get technical and I would want somebody smarter than me with me to discuss this. So I'm going to wimp out on this exit, exit on this answer and just say that if, if a reputable guide tells you that it's safe to stack a capacitor, I would think it's okay. Uh, If you're wondering if there's no guide, if there's no proof, if nobody has ever talked about it, I would remove the original and and put this one on top of it. And for anybody who's unaware, we're talking about surface mount capacitors, little tiny rectangles, not the can cap ones that would fit right on top of the other. You would never want to stack anything that could possibly leak out like that, but I don't even think you could stack a cap like that anyway. Maybe you'd have to have a a through hole with legs around it or something. I don't know. I wouldn't do it for that one, only the SMD ones. So hopefully I kind of helped clarify a few things there, uh, especially about the shielding, but you're always going to run into issues with the 32X. It's just, it's the mushroom turd. When it works, I actually like a bunch of the games, but it mostly doesn't work for me. So good luck. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you've already done most of the hard work. So just the installation should be pretty easy. Eric Walklet is having the same problem most of us have been having with finding an HDMI switch that can support a whole bunch of resolutions and refresh rates that we often use in retro gaming. And I still have not found one reasonably priced that works exactly the way it's supposed to. There was a few switches I used a couple years ago that supported up to 1080p60 that worked really well, except for audio. Audio never really worked right through them. I had other ones that sometimes worked great, but if you switched resolutions on the OSSC, it would freak out. You'd have to power cycle the switch. Um, I've seen more expensive matrix switches that seem to work fine, but those are upwards of 500 bucks and more. So I don't, I would not want to recommend those until I've had a chance to test it myself. And that's definitely not in the cards for the short term. So once again, I'm going to defer this one to the community. Does anybody know a switch that you could buy today? Middle, middle of the part shortage, which means that same like with the DAX I was just talking about. Nine out of ten might be fine, but one might be a different, you know, motherboard inside or whatever. But if anybody knows of one that's compatible with everything we do, 1440p from the Tink 5X, OSSC and the weird refresh rates, you know, please continue to post these things in the YouTube links or wherever else. Um, YouTube does block links, but it should show up in the held for review section. So if you post a legitimate link to a legitimate product on Amazon, I'll make sure to approve it. I go through about once a day with those. Um, and, you know, if it completely gets filtered out, sorry, it's worth worth it if you have something to share. But honestly, I have no solid answer for this. And I do hope that one day, you know, I would love to see a mechanical HDMI switch that's multiple, multiple ports. There's definitely two to one that works perfect because it's essentially the exact same thing as unplugging and replugging your HDMI. But I would love to see an old school mechanical push button style where you could load up as many HDMI devices as you want, you know, minimum of eight, let's just say, and one out and it's just mechanical. There's no signals. There's no HDCP. There's no compliance. There's nothing. It's the, just the, the push button equivalent of removing cables. I would love to see that. And then you stack your devices after it. Then, you know, okay, I'll, you know, I'll buy this HDMI splitter one to two that also extracts audio. And then two years go by and you get a new TV, which has a new format. Cool. Then you reuse the splitter you just got and get a new one, but you keep the same HDMI switch. So anybody out there want to make a mechanical HDMI switch? It's not easy. If it was easy, it would already be out there. But uh, if you do, I'll promote the heck out of it. And I guarantee it. Most people who see it will go, that's dumb. Why would anybody want a mechanical? I have one with the remote right here until they try using it with all their retro. And then they'll swing back around and go, what was that mechanical one again? I heard there was a mechanical one. So yeah, fingers crossed. Pollo Loco is looking to install a triple bypass kit in a Model 1 Japanese Mega Drive and has a few questions. I've done this before with Jose, so I could probably answer all of these, but you're going to have to make a bunch of decisions yourself on how you want to go about doing it. So first, how would you deal with the DIN if you wanted to keep it all stock looking? So 
the reason for this part of the question is because Japanese Model 1 Mega Drives don't have an RF box in them, and their cases don't have the hole cut. So while you could probably mount it in the same location and cut a hole in the case, I am a big fan of no-cut mods. So if you want the original shell, there's two ways you could go about doing it. The first way is remove the RGBS and audio connections from the DIN that's already there, wire up the triple bypass, and then also wire up the front headphone jack with audio, and just use that. So you're basically using the same exact RGB cable that you would have already used in the past, you know, the stereo audio from the front, this from the back, and you're good from there. You could do it two ways. You could so I guess there's three ways to do it. If you're choosing this method, you could just simply wire the left and right audio to the 3.5 millimeter jack. I would use shielded cables, like just basically shielded RCA cables with their own grounds. And that's super easy. You could also keep the headphone jack functionality working. And you're going to have to look for some documentation on that. Hopefully the wiki will get populated with all of this. So it would truly be like the original, where you could choose to use headphones or choose to put it through your system. Way easier to just hook up line level. So that's going to be up to you. The other thing you could do is way trickier, but you could do the same type of installation where you scrape off um, the solder mask, you do the Genesis 2 DIN upside down. But if you did that, over where the existing DIN was. So you remove the, the large DIN, you put the mini DIN in its place. You would have to make absolutely 100% sure that you cleanly severed every one of those connections, including and especially five bolts. So removing RGB and audio and composite is not hard, but you'd also, you might even be able to do that just by removing components, but you would almost surely need to cut some traces on the board to remove five volts. If that's the case, you'll have the upside down DIN sitting right where the original one was, should be fine. I chose method number one when we originally did it. We did, uh, we used the original large DIN for RGBS and then line level audio was tapped through the headphone jack. Um, you also said you were looking at getting the smoke transparent Genesis Model 1 shells from Retro Gamer Store, and it seems like the ports in the back appear to be modeled on the stock Japanese Mega Drive. I am going to double check with you for that, because I thought there was going to be holes already... I can't rem Actually, I can't remember which one they were going, or which direction they were going. One way to look at it would be to have no holes at all, and then you cut your own, which in the case of an aftermarket shell... I'd be completely okay with that, just my opinion. The other is to have all of the holes available, but if you don't have a Model 1 with the EXT port and, and the RF jack, now you just have holes in the back of your case. So it would be my opinion, just an opinion, not the way, that if I were Retro Gamer Store, I probably would only use the holes that are, or only pre-cut the holes that were there, but I might have some kind of guide on there just to show, like, here's... Here's where you would cut to make it the same size as stock. Um, so that that is what I think I would probably do if you were going to buy that case anyway, is I would uh, I would wait till the case arrived, do the mod, and then decide what you want to do from there. Replace the DIN, cut a hole, totally up to you. But I just don't like cutting original plastics. Cutting new plastics, it's fine. That's what they're there for, to use however you would like. Um, and the last question they know the guide makes it clear that RGBS needs to be tapped right off the VDP pins, but is it possible to tap the vias instead, like in the Model 2? No. Uh, I believe we tried this, and I believe we tried this on every Model 1 motherboard revision, but part of the reason Model 1s are so noisy is because of how everything is run on the motherboard. So adding that tiny little capacitor, which is a giant pain in the butt, just to warn you, going directly to the via is, or not the via, the VDP, I apologize, the pins where you lift them up and you carefully slide everything in. That has been the only way we've cleaned that up. And we're even looking for other simpler methods to go about doing that, but there's not been anything better than that at all yet. So I personally wouldn't. And that is, that's the trickiest part because if you, if you do it and you get it right in the first try, awesome. But if you break those pins, that's a ton of work. So there's no, Excuse me, there's no other way around it, at least for now, if you want to keep the high quality. But, you know, if you wanted to try, I don't think there would be any harm in tapping it from a via and seeing what happens. As long as you made sure to, to remove the connections before it hits the CXA, so you're not pulling double the power or, you know, double the, the current from that. So hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction. 
Christopher Deo said they've been on and off working on an N64 that was in a flooded basement during Hurricane Sandy. Its owner gave it to me for free because they figured it was trash, and they've never given up on it and finally got it up and running after many years of trying. They're very proud to have saved a console that was very close to the trash heap. So their question comes down to the metal bits of the N64, the shielding and screws, etc. Some of these metal parts are rusted at the edges. So one, do I know any vendors that sell the screws to reassemble it? They were hoping there was something like a screw kit, just like a cap kit. And two, is there anything I could recommend to treat the rust on the shielding? So I have a couple of, I don't have the direct answers to those, but I have a few things I could recommend. First, on the N64, I'm not sure how much of the metal is necessary. So from a shielding point of view, I don't know that it is. However, I think you have to stack all those up in the order that they were in in order to get the proper seal on the heatsink and to get everything bolted down. So I only mention that because of the ramblings I just talked about before about the shielding on the 32X. Um, this is not one of those cases where you could throw it out. The NES, probably in almost every case, should be fine. The Genesis, but I don't think this one. Um, what to do with it? is pretty tricky. I've had people show me pictures of them sanding it and then immediately after sanding, spraying with clear coat paint and the paint, the obvious or the, the objective of the clear coat paint would be to prevent rust and oxidation and to seal the metal in. Um, but I think there might be better ways to do it. And I think other things than clear paint might be a better choice. I would love if somebody took the time to comment on the methods that they used. I'm pretty sure T did that recently too, so maybe he'd be able to comment. But on the flip side, any vendors that sell screw kits? No, but I think the information is out there on what are very similar screws that you could just buy from Mauser, or not Mauser, um, McMaster, or even Amazon or something like that. But I don't know where that information is listed. Would be a great thing to add to the wiki if anybody found that. But having the near exact replacement screw, you know, the look of it's cool. But more importantly, the exact length and size and thread thread width, uh, I think that's how you say it. I think that's an important thing to have archived on there. So uh, awesome and congrats that you're able to revive a, a console that you thought would have been dead. That's great work. And I'm always happy to hear stuff like that. And I think the metal is probably the easier way to do it. Not, it's going to be time consuming, but I think that's the easier solution because you, you just have to sand it and cover it in some kind of sealant. The screws might be a bit of a pain, but hopefully we could have that info out there and then archived on the wiki. So good call with all that. Another wiki related question from Oliver in regards to a page they're working on that archives info on power supplies for each console. They're looking for any feedback as to how to make the page look as useful as possible for someone who's completely new to power distribution. So I love this. I think this is amazing. I think this is definitely something that we would, we would need. I just think, um, I think a few things need to be on here. First, exactly what you did, voltage, amps, polarity, uh, any kind of part number or connections, the size of the barrel, the length of the barrel, the insides, basically all of the information somebody with technical knowledge and understanding would need to figure out what's the exact size and voltage replacement. Also, if the console has any info on the range of voltage that it could handle, that would also be helpful because things like the 5-volt Neo Geo versus the 9 or 12-volt, that's a huge difference and it would blow up your console if you use the wrong one. Being a little exaggerating there, but, you know, definitely bad. Whereas if you use uh, a triad power supply that's already been verified by the community and the voltage looks like it's, hey, this is... 9 volt and the other one said 7.5 volt or, or something, there are tolerances to these components inside the consoles and each one's going to be slightly different. And to be honest, it's the same way with all electronics. I used to use medical grade equipment that one of them was able to handle between, I, th I think it was between 8 and 20 volts or 12 and 20 volts, whatever it was, but it was a very wide swing or maybe it was 8 and 24. Point is, it's a very wide swing of voltage as long as you provided the minimum amperage. That's heavy-duty medical-grade equipment. Most consumer-grade equipment's going to be a lot tighter of a tolerance, but there's still going to be a tolerance. So if anybody happens to know, that would be great. Even if it's as easy as this console's power supply is 7.862 volts, but it's totally compatible with a 9-volt. Like, 
info like that would be great. But I think for somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, what I would love to see is just a very easy way to get the answer to what's the replacement power supply. And that's what's going to be tricky with the, uh, pages like this on the wiki. And it might require multiples or, or different subsections or whatever. But anybody with technical knowledge that needs the info on this is going to want all of the specs that you have listed. But how do you do that? Just click on this for a compatible one. That's pretty tough. And I think um, Firebrand X and Castlemania Games did a great job with that for on both of their sites. And I'm not sure how much of that would... Like, maybe Firebrand X would be able to help out a little bit. The only confusing thing is that some power supplies are a direct replacement, and others require a pigtail on top of it. And when you go down that road, then you start saying, well, why? if the pigtail is needed for the triad, can't you just find a different power supply that doesn't need it? And then you go down the road of what power supply do you recommend? Who's actually done the testing? Has there been consistent batches made? And I don't want any part of that. That's frustrating for everybody, even especially frustrating for the people that bent over backwards to get a good power supply. So yeah, that's a, that's a rough one. I think what you have started here is great. I think technical specs would be more important because of places like, you know, retro RGB and Castlemania and Firebrand X's website I think from us taking the perspective of, hey, if you just want the answer to the question, click on this. You know, there might be multiple ways to solve this problem, but this one's not the wrong way to solve it. So just buy this thing for 20 bucks and you're done. I think that's exactly what I would love to see retro RGB concentrate on while on that same page saying, but if you want to know why the info is there, or if you want to go about a different solution, go to consulods.org and check out this awesome page with all of the details on it. So it's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but Hey, it's me. It's always going to be like that. Uh, but I just, I wanted to put some, I wanted to put some more thought and, and effort into answering this question because it doesn't just apply to your question about this power supply page. This is going to be my answer for any time that there is a scenario like this in which you have very technical data that's needed up there, but you also want to have an easy answer. I think that's another perfect example of what I said, or what I meant when I said I want just the facts on the wiki and the opinions on RetroRGB. Totally comfortable with setting it up that way. But that's that's not rules. That's my stupid opinions. So if you have any difference in opinion, let me know. Let Durf know. We'll figure this out together. At the end of the day, I just want the right answer, not my answer. Never need, it's never need to be my answer as long as it's the right one. So great question. And uh, hopefully discussions like this would spark other discussions that apply to most of the pages on there. Jason Guffey was curious about used oscilloscopes. So we talked a while back about alternatives to the $400 Rigel, and I suggested the 100 or 125 Owan brand. And Jason wanted to know, well, why wouldn't you just look for really good older scopes? Are there things that the new ones do that are better than the old ones? Uh, are there issues to worry about? And what I've been told by people who are much smarter than me is the issue is rolling the dice about calibration. So the, the short and easy way to explain this is all scopes need to be calibrated and after a certain period of time, things could get thrown off by a lot or not. And at that point, that's where you have to either bring it someplace to be calibrated or send it back to the manufacturer and that could cost a few hundred dollars. So the people that were talking to me about this when I was using it for things like reviewing products and helping developers make sure that their products fall under standards and making sure that when you plug three crazy different things together, it doesn't throw things off. It's very important that my scope was calibrated. Very, very important. Whereas if you're looking to say, hey, I just built all this stuff from scratch for my own setup. What's the voltage like? Is this safe? It doesn't really need to be that strict. You know, you're supposed to have video at 714 millivolts if you're off by one or two or three percent, eh, it's not really going to make a difference. I mean, if you're making a product, yes. But if you're just worrying about how it's going to look on your CRT, you know, it's not the biggest deal in the world. So that's why I didn't look into used scopes. And that's why I try not to recommend them. Because what if you get a scope that used to be 10 grand and you got it for a hundred bucks at a tag sale and you plug it in and it's perfect. That's awesome. But what if that same scenario, you plug it in and all the readings are 20% off? 
you could do some serious damage to your own equipment, if to other people's if you're designing something. And to have that calibrated might cost so much that at the end of the day, just buying the $400 Rigel would have been the better move anyway. And newer scopes can self-calibrate. It's a little bit different. Um, I'm not smart enough to give the full explanation as to why, but if you have like the Rigel scope that I talk about, you do need to recalibrate it every couple of months. You know, heavy temperature changes when you move it. Um, but that kind of calibration is you plug your probe into the scope, you clip it to the end, you run a thing, and, and that's it. That's a little different. It's not an in-depth calibration of how the tool works. It's really just calibrating the probes and the basics. So I wanted to mention that just so if anybody overheard the first part and they said, what are you talking about? I could easily just, you know, recalibrate this way. That's that's a little bit different. So that's something that, you know, it's, it's cool if you have the ability to repair it, if you know people that'll help you with it. But generally speaking, I would buy a new one and I would especially try to lean towards ones that many of us in retro gaming use for the simple answer of, or the simple reason of, if you need an answer to your question, you fire that out on social media. And if there's 50 people that have the same scope as you, you're probably going to get an answer. Whereas if you're like, I have a 1985 scope from this and that, and you know, good luck trying to figure out how to work it. So next they randomly found an old cable box in their basement. They're unsure of where it came from or why it's still there, but they don't know what to do with it. Um, if it has HDMI out, it's probably still something that's used. So I would consider just, you know, if you have a, a representative or a, a building of that company near you, just drop it off there. Um, I know where I'm at, a lot of these cable companies have their own buildings, but they also say if you're with Spectrum, you could drop off equipment at UPS or something like that. Um, if it's something with an HDMI output, it could probably still be used. So I would just drop it back off and give it back. If it's not HDMI, or maybe if you call the cable provider and they're like, we don't know what the hell that is, throw it out. Then I would start saying, well, hey, what are all those connectors on there? RCA connectors have gone through the roof in price in the past couple of years. Can you, what is the box shape like? Can you repurpose this thing for other uses? Can you take e-waste and make it into something else? And that's the type of thing that I would love to see people hack up. Like the scenario of a cable box that has a zero vintage value and, you know, nothing, nothing that you're going to be able to use in the future because it's locked to the cable box, a cable company. That's the opposite of the no cut mod. Go nuts. Do whatever you want. Build some crazy shit with it. Have some fun. See what you could use the parts for. For me personally, I just, you know, I don't like to waste things. And I certainly don't like to throw things out that I know have another use. In fact, in one of those whatnot streams, a bunch of people bought adapters and stuff from me that probably didn't work and probably were junk if they did work. But everybody that bought them, bought them with the mentality of, hey, I just got that for two bucks and that's eight bucks worth of RCA connectors. Beautiful. It saved my next mod. So it was, uh, you know, it's cool stuff like that that I like doing to repurpose things. So just my suggestions on both of those. Next up is a question about arcade sticks from Rob. But first of all, they said they posted this question last week and it got deleted. I'm really sorry that this keeps happening. Um, originally we thought maybe it was people who post very long questions, but your question is not long. Uh, and there were much longer questions this week that all fit in one post. So I don't know what's going on. I do not delete comments on any support service. Uh, it's just, it's never happened. Or if it is, it's something I talked to you about, like, Hey, you put the comment in the wrong spot. Cause you reposted. I'll delete this one. It's never a thing on support services. So, and it's obviously not something that it's like words are getting caught into filters because we talk about nerd things. There's no, you know, there's nothing in your post that could get automatically flagged for, you know, inappropriate or something like that. So I don't know what the heck's wrong with Patreon. The only thing you could do is just email them and, and say, you know, you're frustrated, but they don't listen to me when I email them about it. So I don't, they probably won't listen to you either. Anyway, on to your actual question. Um, Rob was looking to get a joystick with USB support, mostly for their mister, but as a secondary use for any other consoles that will support it. But when checking out these joysticks, they're finding they don't feel the way they remember from back in the day. They're not 100% sure if it's rose-colored glasses or if they actually really like the old Ninja Turtles and Final Fight cabinets better than the newer sticks that are out there. So... They were originally wondering if there were any joystick housings like the Mayflash F300 that support swapping these kind of joysticks. And they wanted to try that before spending money on something like the mass stick, which might be exactly what they're looking for, but they want to know first. 
And my answer to your question would be start with whatever is the either the cheapest solution or the easiest, whichever is more important to you. You know, time is money. So, you know, if you have extra cash, but don't have the time to mess around with this stuff, maybe you go to the easier solution. But here's some different ways to go about doing it. You could first try to find a store like Brooklyn Video Games that always has a variety of sticks there available for sale. I don't know where they find them all. I don't know how they do it, but there's always a handful of sticks there for you to try out and purchase whichever one you like. If time is is really important to you, you could go to a store like that, buy two or three sticks, and for a couple hundred bucks, bring them home, try them out, and figure out which buttons are best for you, which style, and if anything feels right. Um, but on the flip side of things, you could try to look for any kits out there. Like I vaguely remember TR fight stick having something. There's a few different kits out there that are basically metal rectangles with holes pre-cut that could support multiple different types of buttons. You would just have to check that it supports the ones that you would like. You could of course try to find an industrial piece of plastic, not like a Tupperware, like an industrial strength, hard piece of plastic that you could make your own out of to try all of those things are good ideas. It's really up to you to decide what's more important to you. Buying a bunch of stuff, trying them out, and then picking which one's your favorite, or taking the time and effort to build these to find out which button to USB converters have all the features you want. If it's fun for you to dig in and do that, definitely do that. Because if you like doing that stuff, it's a pretty cool experience. If it's not something you enjoy the testing, you just want to skip to the end, buy a bunch of pre-mades, cheap, and kind of go from there. Um, you know, everybody kind of has different, uh, different opinions on this. I think everybody ends up deciding on a stick that's their favorite and they don't generally switch from that. The only times that they do are things like, I guess the best example I can give is my scenario and that I always liked the, the large American buttons and everything that you found on the arcade cabinets. And that's kind of the, where I was always going for until a bunch of my friends started showing me the Sanwa stuff. I bought Art's old Vulix stick. Beast would always tell me about that. In the interview I did with him, he described exactly why you would want a shorter throw and all of that stuff. So if, if I were to ever enter a tournament, which I wouldn't because I suck at games. I love them, but I suck at them. But if I would, I would bring that Vulix stick. It's the most comfortable I've ever used. I like the way the buttons feel. Everything's great. But when I built the mini Neo Geo cab... I wanted it to feel like a mini Neo Geo cab. I wanted it to have the same stick and buttons. I wanted it to have the same look and feel. And in fact, the only difference is that it was a 13-inch screen that you could put on a tabletop versus a 19-inch screen in a stand-up cab. Other than that, everything was the same. So I went for the bigger sticks, and I personally thought that was the right move because um, that's what I wanted. If I wanted to play Neo Geo with those other buttons, I could grab a Mr. or I can grab another uh, MV1C, plug it in with all of that stuff, and there you go. But when I sit down in front of a cabinet that feels like Neo Geo, that's what I wanted. So that's up to you to decide. There's no right answer. There's only whatever you prefer. The only wrong answer is to buy a very cheap, crappy, laggy stick to USB converter. So as long as you don't do that, there's no wrong answers. There's lots of good ones out there, uh, and there's lots of great stick choices out there too. So I don't know if I answered your question, but hopefully I was able to add some perspective. Nick managed to squeeze a question in just before I was done recording these. You posted it five minutes ago, so great timing, Nick. Um, they've really been enjoying the JLC PCB ads. Thank you for making ads fun and informative. I was wondering though, is it possible to order PCBs from them with properly beveled edges, for example, for making game cartridge PCBs? If so, could you use that for one of those ads sometime? If not, can you use another recommendation on how to do this, preferably for low quantities and in a similar price range? Well, a couple of answers to that. Uh, thank you very much for your kind words. I do try to walk the line of having something that is an ad that I get paid for, but isn't stupidly boring to listen to. Drives me nuts on that when I have to sit through those. And I try to sit through them on my friends' channels, but eh. So I try to make it relevant. Um, also, having properly beveled PCBs with gold edges on them is expensive. And it's especially expensive in low quantities. So I have no clue if JLC PCB does it, but I love your suggestion. I will absolutely follow up as soon as I'm done with this and ask, uh, and I'll figure out the answer to that. Um, but if they do do it, it's going to be expensive because it, it has to be. Um, using gold edges, having the machines bevel them, that's not 
something that is as easy as just a pick and place machine. That's, I mean, that those aren't easy either, but you know, if you're a company that does this type of thing, so I'll look into it for you. But the reason that a lot of these companies cheap out and use this garbage is because it is more expensive and it's harder to do. So excellent question. I will absolutely follow up. Hopefully you'll see an ad in a couple of weeks with it, but I just want to make sure to set realistic expectations for any, wherever your manufacturer might be, whoever they might be, it's going to be more expensive. And a lot of these places, especially ones where if you have low quantities, like I want 50 made, they'll send you a sample and uh, that's everything you want. And then they'll make the 50 that's not hard gold and the edges are not beveled. And then what are you going to do? And that's when you got to make sure that you have somewhere in the contract of it has to be built to these specifications or I'm sending them back. Now, most of the bigger named companies won't do this, but a lot of times when you go to cut corners, you end up with these places that are like, oh, of course we could do that. Here's an example. And they never do. So you just got to be careful. I'll look into the JLC PCB thing for you. Uh, and if anybody else has any other suggestions on places they know will make the PCBs right, uh, you know, I'm all yours. So thank you for the question. Thanks for the kind words. That was a good one. And I'm going to follow up. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you would like wherever it is that you support, just in the latest Q&A post. The way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I really just love scrolling through in real time like you saw today. And I especially like it when a question sneaks in right under the wire and I get one right before I'm done uh, done shooting these things. It always I don't know why, that always cracks me up and makes me smile. But before I'm done shooting, I always hit refresh on all of the different support services just to make sure no other questions sneak in. Uh, and they did today, which was awesome. I was able to get it. So any question you have, just ask wherever it is you support. And of course, and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible, including just spreading the word. I try to always remind people that if you're not in a position to support or you don't feel like it, but you still want to help out, there are ways to do so at no cost to you. And spreading the word is a big deal. So thank you all so much. Thank you for doing all that. Thank you for sticking with me and I'll see you next week.